James chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. This is God's word. If we've not met, my name's Matt, Matt Full. I'd love to uh, meet you, say hello uh, afterwards, but as we begin... Let's pray together. Our Father, what a God you are, who gives us words and speaks words to us tonight that are so pertinent, and some of us need them acutely here and now in this moment, and others, uh, others, well, they're preparatory, and they're for the future. But Father, thank you for these words and how to think of, how to respond to the trials of life. Would we hear them rightly? Would you prepare us? Would you equip us? Would you sustain us by your spirit in order to obtain the crown of life, in order to bring you great honor and praise? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I mean, now I've, I have to be, I'm um, somewhat feebly been wavering between two different desires recently. I've, uh, uh, for a little while now, I've had some uh, ongoing back and uh, sort of muscle problems, just what happens when you get a bit older. And, um, 
Uh, it's ebbed and flowed a little bit, at times acute. Uh, so I've been back and forth to doctors, and the uh, sport and exercise consultant has given me some pretty uh, robust sort of program of exercise. I've had to change my diet slightly. I have to boost those omega-3s for muscle development. Uh, I've had to, uh, there's a sort of daily exercise program I have to do. She insists that I do this ridiculous thing in the swimming pool, where I put this sort of inflatable belt around me and run in the deep end and go nowhere. That's just it. That's it. And every time, doesn't matter how many times you do it, there's always someone there who says, do you need a hand? Are you drowning? (laughs) Um, Because you do look like a complete lemon when you do it. Anyway, so I'm on this exercise, and I know it's good for me. And I know that when I do it, the pain is far less pronounced, uh, and I'm pain-free. In one sense, the goal is a pain-free life. I know what I'm meant to do. I know what's good for me. And yet, if I'm honest, I like my bed. Uh, And I'm not wildly keen on getting up early and going to the gym, or even in the middle of the day, uh, going and being patronized by 80-year-old women saying, do you need me to rescue you? No, no, dear. No, thank you. I am fine. I'm meant to be going nowhere very quickly. I don't really enjoy those. I know what's good for me. I much prefer it when my life is pain-free. And yet, to be honest, I'm a bit idle. Uh, and the, the root of least resistance is to do nothing and to eat chuff because it's more enjoyable than healthy stuff. Um, and so in that sense, I guess James would describe me as double-minded. I know what I want, and I know what's best for me, and I know life runs better when I do what I'm told and do the exercises and eat the right food. But I don't always do it, because sometimes it's just a bit more fun to not do it. I'm I'm not single-minded. By contrast, uh, uh, the woman who's given me, uh, sort of, who cracked the whip over me, the, the, the physio who demands more, 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 uh, on a regular basis, she is absurdly single-minded. She, her swimming regime is nuts, and I, I, why do you swim? Ah, oh, because in September I intend to swim Lake Geneva. What do you mean you swim Lake Geneva? In it? <laughs> no, all of it. How far is that? 69 kilometers. Right. You're going there for a week. No, 24 hours. I'm going to swim six... Oh, right. How often do you... Well, yeah, I normally put in about somewhere between 15 and 30K most days. Oh, right. Makes me feel a little bit feeble with my sort of 20 minutes worth of exercises that I can't be bothered to do. That is a single-minded devotion. For myself, I vacillate. I ebb and flow. I'm not so good on that. The call of the book of James is to be single-minded in the Christian life, not double-minded. So we get it beginning tonight. Verse 8, we're described, a certain person negatively is described as double-minded and unstable in all they do. If you just turn over a page, uh, in uh, certainly uh, one of the key passages in the book, let me read you chapter 4 and verse 4 to 8. Here is describing one of the issue for James's audience. 
will they be single-minded in their pursuit of God or will they be double-minded? I want to follow the Lord, but I quite like this world. I want to follow the world. Well, that's the problem. Let's, let me read it to you again. Chapter 4, verse 4. James will put it in these terms. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's a very black and white book, James. It says you cannot have one foot trusting in the Lord and one foot following the ways of this world, of culture, which when it goes against the Lord, you can't do that. You need to be single-minded. So here we are in chapter 1 tonight. And uh, we're only going to go as far as chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 12 of chapter 1. And there he'll say, you need to be single-minded because that way you receive the crown of life. Chapter 1, verse 12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So two trajectories. You either Follow the way of the Lord, which will end up with the crown of life. Or you follow your own ways, you follow the ways of the world. And you'll be shut out. Ends in death, he'll say. It's very black and white, the book of James. It's binary. Now, life is a bit more complicated than that. And yeah, 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 he'll nuance that a little bit. But it is a black and white call to devote yourself single-mindedly to trust in the Lord. And yet at the same time, I think the book of James is one of those books which is most loved by Christians because it's so practical. Actually, most of it is pretty straightforward. You really don't need someone up the front proclaiming it to you. It's quite easy to know what you're meant to do. It's just quite hard to do it sometimes. So it's a funny book, James. It's incredibly black and white and yet lovely. We love it. We'll see as we go through. Now, in chapter 1, he starts off with the area of trials and temptations. That's actually one word, but not unreasonably translated in two different ways. So, uh, uh, chapter 1 and verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Same word in verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Same word as verse 13. When tempted, no one can say, God is tempting me. Same words in the Greek. Trial, temptation. The the difference is really only one of context. The, The testing of your faith can come externally as a trial or internally as a temptation. That, that's slightly, as we'll get uh, into it, that's slightly the difference that gets drawn out. But either way, it's a test of your faith. Here in the first 12 verses, the, the emphasis comes upon the trials that come upon us. Uh, and next week, we'll see the, the temptations that we receive. That's slightly how it breaks down. But you might uh, 
Yeah, okay, just so. Now, James, then, just one other word of context. James, then, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, he's a servant of God and the Lord Jesus. He's writing to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So it's a general letter. It's not written specifically to one church in one city like Corinthians or Ephesians or Philippians. It's a more general letter to the 12 tribes. It just means everyone, really, is his point. Christians all over the world. And it's clear, again, then, when you read through the letter, that in the early church, the trials of life that come upon us were a cause of wavering. Follow the Lord. Follow the way of the world. So you might want to think of it uh, in these terms. A bit like you come to a junction, a road junction. I don't know if we've got a little road junction, Dave. So perhaps you might think of it a bit like this. Uh, In uh, James chapter 1, you are in trials and temptations. You have a choice. When you enter the place of trials and temptations, same word, just different emphasis, internal, external. You either follow God's wisdom and you're on a trajectory that'll take you to crown of life. Or you follow my wisdom, your own wisdom. You do whatever you, you do, what thinks makes most sense to you, even though God says different. And that's a path of instability, ultimately a path of death. So that's where we are in James chapter 1, both halves of it, one half tonight, one half next week. We're in trials and temptations. Are you going to follow God's wisdom or follow your own? That's the choice he puts before us. Let's have a look at it this way then. Uh, James chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. We really, you've got to hold this passage, all of it, really, 1 to 18 together. We're only in 1 to 12 tonight. But it still isn't a collection of random thoughts. Let's hold it together. So we're going to look at it like this. Uh, rejoice when you face trials, verses 2 to 4. Pray for wisdom concerning trials, verses 5 to 8. And endure both types of financial trial in 9 to 12. Rejoice, pray, endure. Let's go at it then. Uh, first then, verses 2 to 4. Rejoice when you face trials. Chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, chapter 1, verse 2 is one of those statements where you might think, are you, for, are you for real? Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. And what does he mean by trials? Well, in this letter, in the letter of James, the trials that stand out are those of poverty. It's a very strong theme of the letter. But it's a general term. I don't think you need to constrain it to that. Loneliness. Disappointment. Sickness, many kinds of trial. And of course, trials are one of those times in life where you ask, Lord, why are you letting this happen to me? Oh, there you are, you're in trials and temptations. 
And of course, if you don't believe in God, it's, not, not obviously, it's obviously not a question you ask. There is no purpose to your suffering. Uh, if you get sick or someone you love gets sick, that's just unlucky. You're just a loser in the game of life. Sorry about that. You can only ask the question why if you think that there is some kind of God. Now, James says, consider it pure joy. He says that to the believer. Why? Because, verse 3, Consider it pure joy. Are you serious? Yes, because, verse 3, you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. I don't want to be glib, but there is a, there is a certain sense in, in which the trials of life, they are a bit like exercise, going to the gym, going for a run, going for a swim. It's a little bit like that. When you do such things, you get exhausted, But you are fitter at the end of it. And you have to go through the pain for the gain. That's naff, isn't it? You have to go through the pain for the benefits of exercise. You cannot sit in a classroom and someone teach you about exercise. Well, here is how the cardiovascular system works. And this is anaerobic exercise. And this is aerobic exercise. You can sit in the classroom and someone can teach you all that. But it does you physically no good. You have to endure the exercise yourself to gain to improve, to develop. It's obvious to us. But that's his point here. Even the very best teaching, Bible studies, sermons you might listen to, even a wonderfully devotional, regular pattern of Bible reading, it doesn't prepare you It doesn't grow your perseverance quite in the same way that trials do. There is a limit to even the very best teaching about how we can be toughened up to become mature. Trials do that in a way nothing else does. I was struck recently... Uh, a few of us are away at something. Uh, Don Carson, who spoke at Revive, the uh, Bible teacher lecturer, um, was commenting that uh, where he goes to church, uh, a lovely lad who'd grown up in the church, uh, you know, from birth, you know, Christian family in the church, had grown up, been a, a leader, a terrific, you know, great in youth group, had gone off to university and uh, led his Christian union at university, um, uh, and married a terrific uh, Christian woman, uh, and they'd sort of daydreamed and had plans, and, you know, we're going to go off and convert the world, and we're going to go overseas and do all sorts of uh, extraordinary things. Uh, you know, he's just clearly a golden boy, super bright, super able, uh, very humble. Uh, and then he became sick. He had early cancer, I think it was. No, it was treated, and he recovered. But then he left the church and had an affair and just walked away from his wife. And Carson, observing this within the church, one day was in the car with the, 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 the pastor and said, well, what, do you th- what happened there? What do you think went on in that guy's life? How... He was such a terrific leader, and then it just blew up. And the pastor said to him, he had never endured any suffering in his life at all.
at the first time it came in a pretty serious way. <laughs> Just collapsed. There'd be no preparation. And you can have no certainty of the genuineness of your faith until you've gone through trials. So you can consider it joy because when you go through trials and persevere, your faith has been demonstrated to be genuine. Whereas until that point, who knows? You get an imperative in verse 4. So uh, you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. It's an imperative there. Let perseverance finish its work. It makes sense to us if you went to the hairdressers. Normally, you let them finish their work. Now, to be honest, if I go and walk out half of my haircut, takes about six minutes these days, and uh, it's quite hard to do anything wrong, particularly with it. I guess you could dye it pink. Uh, I think I'd wise up before someone actually did that to me. But for some of you, I guess your haircuts take more than six minutes. Some of you may, I, I observe, take quite a long time. Uh, and uh, if you're doing something dramatic, going from you know, a haircut from down here to up here, and if they'd done one half, you'd let the barber finish their work. You wouldn't be a barber, would it? It would be, um, it would be a hairdresser. Um, you'd, let them, you'd let them finish their work. You wouldn't walk out halfway. And that's his point. If you're in the trial, don't, don't press eject halfway. Let perseverance finish its work. Or perhaps better, the picture is of perseverance as a master craftsman, sculpting us, chiseling our character, knocking away the rough edges, smoothing off imperfections, helping us grow to be mature. But even that's not really good enough, is it? Because perseverance, it's not perseverance. What does that mean? It's the Lord who does this. It is God who's the sculpture. So when he says, you know, let perseverance finish its work, obviously it's let the Lord finish his work in your perseverance so you may be complete and mature. So when you're thinking, ow, ow, it hurts right now, it it, it is God who's doing it, the one who is a father to you. If you're a Christian who has chosen you, known you before the world was created, before you were born, had a plan for your life, has mapped out every day of your life, will take you to be with him in glory. It is that father who loves you. That's the one you're trusting to do his work. It it is Jesus, the one, as we've sung already, has known more pain and suffering than you and I will, who has endured horrific pain for the sake of you and me. It, It is him we're trusting to complete his work. So let perseverance finish its work. Now we might think, I guess the temptation here, we might think in the middle of a trial, this hurts. And there are some trials in life, not all, but there are some trials in life which you can end. If your suffering is for being a Christian, if in some sense you're suffering a trial because you're Uh, different from the world around you, 
your habits of drinking or your habits of dating, your habits of discoursing, if those habits are different from the world around you and that is causing you to uh, endure a trial of some kind, you can end it. You think, I'll oh, stuff it, I won't live the Christian life. I'll go the way of the world. And James is saying, no, stick on that path. It may be painful. You might think, oh, it's just much easier over there. But it is not. Stick on this path. Or it might be in the short term easier, but this way is the crown of life. Stick on that path. Keep going. Let perseverance finish its work. So because of that, consider your trials a joy. Of course he is not saying, I've been made redundant. Praise the Lord. It's a trial. You don't celebrate in them, but you celebrate in what they're achieving for you. He's not calling for a nonsense, a, a glibness. It's a calculated joy. I can rejoice because I know what these are achieving. I know that in them, this will be the testing of my faith. It'll prove. It'll help me persevere in the long term. It'll make me mature. Therefore, I can rejoice in those truths. I've experienced suffering. I'm still going as a Christian. God has really got his hand on me in that sense. Rejoice when you face trials. Let's pick it up. Uh, Secondly then, uh, chapter, excuse me, verses uh, 5 to 8. Pray. Pray for wisdom concerning trials. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom... You should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Look, this is not a new random topic. Anyway, enough about trials. Wisdom. Let's talk about wisdom. He's not randomly changing topic. It's if you facing trials of life and think in those trials, what am I supposed to do in this? I don't know how I'm meant to respond to this. In those circumstances, pray. Now look, all of us lack wisdom in certain situations. There's nothing like perplexity to make us pray, Lord, I don't know what I'm meant to do here. But don't rip this verse 5 out of context. It is a wonderful promise with a condition. But don't rip it out of context. Don't think to yourself, do you know what I lack? I lack wisdom over which lottery balls are coming up uh, midweek. Lord, I lack wisdom, and your word promises me that you'll give it generously. Hey, so I'm just going to shut my eyes and take a pen and just pray. I guess you know that's not the case. It's if you lack wisdom in trials then pray and God will grant it. Now, this is still a great promise in times of suffering, frustration. Lord, I don't understand what is going on. I don't understand what I'm meant to do. Pray. Being realistic, sometimes in acute trials, you struggle to pray. And you need others to draw alongside you and pray for you. Pray with you. Sometimes you just got to say, help. I, I, I just can't pray right now. But either on your own or getting others to do it, pray 
Now look, there is a condition, verse 6. When you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that you do, all they do. So look, the doubter here is the double-minded man. A foot in God's camp and a foot in the world. You know, it's just that sort of, which do I trust? Which do I trust? He's asking. Now, of course, there's a sense in which all Christians live in this world, but there is one of fundamental loyalty. It's no different to Jesus saying, uh, Matthew's gospel, you can't serve two masters, you have to serve the Lord or money. James is making the same point here. Who has your loyalty? Silly example. Uh, a few years ago, uh, Phil Alcott gave me a book. Uh, it was my birthday. And um, Agent Zigzag. Anyone read it? It's terrific. Uh, ask Phil for book recommendations. Comes up with winners. But uh, Agent Zigzag is a story of Eddie Chapman. He was uh, a skiv, uh, a, a cad, a, a bounder, uh, a crook, a low-level crook. Uh, when uh, Germany first invaded um, uh, the uh, Jersey in 1939, he was there as a criminal, tried to escape, couldn't, got captured. Uh, thought, uh-oh, I'm in a spot of bother. Uh, and so handed him, went, went to the highest-ranking German officer and said, do you want me to be a spy? I don't fancy going to prison. How about I be a spy for you? Look at me, got a Cockney accent. Everyone will trust me. Uh, train me up to be a spy. And they said, okay. Um, so he went off and for a year was trained in all sorts of spying techniques by the mysterious Dr. Grauman. It's a true story. Um, who trained him for a year. And then, uh, uh, I think it actually was a bit longer than that. In, in 1942, he got parachuted back into the UK and was meant to spy on all sorts of things. He got landed in uh, Kent, I think it was in 1942, handed himself into the police and said, uh, hello, can you take me to the home office? And uh, went to a ranking officer in the home office and said, would you like me to be a double spy? Would you like me to be a double agent for you? And I went, oh, okay. Uh, and so he spent the rest of the war feeding false information to the Germans so that whenever they flew uh, V2s and doodlebugs over London, they kept missing because he gave them the wrong coordinates and they landed uh, in fields of Kent rather than landing in the city. So he saved thousands of lives. Now, he worked for two people. He reported to Dr. Grauman and, I can't remember the bloke's name, uh, in uh, early MI5, SIS or whatever it was in those days. But his fundamental loyalty was to the Brits. And James is saying, of course we live in two worlds, as it were. Of course, in one sense, everyone who is a Christian lives in this world and operates by the standards of this world. In many, but, but the Lord must have your loyalty. Ultimately, you can't serve two masters. You can only serve one. But the Lord must have your loyalty. Here's the drumbeat of James. Don't be double-minded. Live your faith consistently. So are you clear on whom you serve, James would ask. Oh, look, tangent. If you're a wholehearted believer in the Lord, it should make you a better citizen of the UK in terms of your diligence to obey the rules, etc. Yeah, there's not. But fundamentally, who has your loyalty? So here, Pray. Pray for wisdom concerning trials. The prayer of wisdom is, or the prayer of belief, I guess, in the midst of trials is, Lord, I want to grow in wisdom. And I'll pay the price of that. Wisdom is more important to me than comfort, than going down the path of least resistance. Wisdom, having being shaped by you for maturity, that matters to me more than ease. 
Otherwise, if you, if you follow the, 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 the wisdom of the world, if you follow your own wisdom, you are, verse 8, double-minded and unstable. As he said in a, a little bit earlier in verse 6, you're tossed about on the wind. You're like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed about by the wind. I don't know if you've ever been out on the sea and, and lost control of, of a boat. It's a slightly terrifying thing. I seem to remember just a couple of years ago, New Year's Eve, uh, a gang from this congregation <laughs> uh, took a boat up to Scotland, uh, celebrating New Year's Eve in Scotland, and uh, took a dinghy out on the water one night on New Year's Eve. There's a few boys and a few girls, and I think one group were trying to impress the other group. Um, and in this dinghy, in a sort of eight-man dinghy, you know, with outdoor, mo- oh, outdoor, outboard motor, and it conked out in the middle of the North Sea. And by all accounts, as one or two I can see can remember, that was a slightly terrifying experience in the North Sea at night, in the dark, with the wind whipping up, and your little ape man going, woo. Uh, I'm not sure if anyone asked. Impressed, are you? In the scenario, no, terrifying. And they had to get the Coast Guard out, and uh, one of those things that makes a lovely story afterwards. But terrifying. You don't want to be unstable. So pray. Pray for wisdom concerning trials. Lord, in this scenario, give me what I need to keep going. I'd love to see some purpose in the trial. I'd love to understand why this is taking place. But he never promises to give you that. But he does promise wisdom to endure. Wisdom to keep going. Pray. Rejoice when you face trials. Pray for wisdom concerning trials. Uh, Lastly, more briefly, verses 9 to 12, endure both types of financial trial. Now, there's lots in the book on uh, finance, so we won't spend lots of time here. But verse 9, verses 9 to 12, endure both types of financial trial. Verse 9, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. The rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plants. Its blossom falls, its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Now, culturally back then, you you got much less of a middle class, perhaps larger disparities of wealth. You You are an owner. You own slaves, you own houses, or you may well be a, a servant. You slightly greater disparity, you know, great middle class, uh, as kind of everyone is now. And you see throughout this letter that money was causing enormous tensions. So James says quickly, look, the poor man should take pride in his high position. You're impoverished, a slave, and all of a sudden you become a Christian. And you're told that the God of the universe, who reigns over all, calls you his child and will take you to be with him so you can inherit everything forever. Brilliant. That is an enormously exalted position from being a slave. But what about the rich man who should boast in his low position? I I think probably what it means is that you got in a church some super affluent people, some poor slaves, and now the affluent ones are going to have to associate with the poor people. And their mates down the golf club say, did I see you with Stinky Simon? The other day, are you hanging out with slaves? (laughs) Uh, And it's slightly humiliating. It's humbling. 
And James says, no, rejoice in that. Rejoice. It's easy to feel that you've been brought down low, but rejoice. You're a Christian and everything else will fade. So end of verse 10, look, all the rich will just fade away like a wildflower. Sun rises, it's scorching heat, withers the plant, blossom falls, beauty's destroyed. Sobering picture, isn't it? You can imagine there's a garden, and one flower in particular is beautiful. And is there in the middle of the garden saying, yeah, look at my colors. Look at my colors. All the bees love me. Mm-hmm. Look at my pollen. Ooh. And all the others look on, flower. Uh, and then um, the sun comes out directly above this flower, and it's Middle Eastern sun, not a sort of feebly thing. Uh, and withers the thing. Well done, flower. You were very impressive for a week. Well done, affluent, successful millionaire. You were successful for a few years. Very good. And now in eternity you have nothing. That's his point. But he does say that both are trials. There's no fun in poverty. The temptation is to trust your own wisdom. Grab after money, illegally perhaps. But there's a trial in wealth as well. It can make you proud, make you think, I don't need God. I have an enormous bank account. Shall I follow the Lord? Well, it's hard. I'll just trust my money. Much easier that way. Well, there's a trial in both. Not very easy for most of us here to say, okay, I'm dishing out the trials. Do you want the trial of poverty or the trial of wealth? Mm, Don't be fooled by that. It is much harder to lead a productive Christian life if you're wealthy. We'll get there in a couple of weeks. Just turn over the page to so I can make my point. Chapter 2, verse 5. Chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Well, we'll get there in a couple of weeks' time. Is God biased towards the poor? Rightly understood? Yes. Rightly understood, but only that's for a couple of weeks' time. It is harder to live a productive Christian life if you're affluent. Don't think that's an easy trial. It is not. There we are. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. Rejoice when you face trials. Pray for wisdom concerning them. Endure both types of financial trial. If you're in the middle of trials right now, do share them with others. To get people around you to help, get people to pray with you. But know that there is a choice. You trust the Lord, and you need to have very clearly in your mind that you're heading for the crown of life. Or you trust yourself. It's unstable, it's walking across ice in flat leather shoes. You think you're doing all right, and then, and ultimately, it'll take you away from the Lord takes you to death. Look forward to the crown of life. That's what James is reminding us. You win eternal life by holding on to Jesus. By trusting the wisdom of God. And so in this, as we've sung already, We do need to trust the one who's gone before us. 
we do need to trust Jesus as our wisdom, as our strength. What did he do when he came and trials came to him? He prayed. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed to his father. Throughout his ministry, he prays in the midst of trials. He endured. Hebrews 12 will tell us that for the joy set before him, he endured. You've got to have the future set clearly before you. He prayed, he endured, he did so with joy. So you and I will face trials. Sometimes we'll be at that place of trials and temptations. You may feel it very acutely right now. And James is not being glib when he says, rejoice. You know they're proving, demonstrating the genuineness of your faith. Pray. If you can't do it, get others around you. And endure. Keep going. Oh, we'll bog it sometimes. As you keep coming back to Jesus, who prayed, who endured, who trusted his Father with joy. But trust his wisdom. Let's pray together. Our Father, few of us here would choose uh, a route of trials over a route of ease. And yet you tell us that we can find joy in the midst of trials because of what they're achieving for us. Father, for those here tonight who really do feel the intense heat of trial. Father, please be of great comfort to them. Would they know your presence very close to them? Would words spoken tonight not be offensive, but be of encouragement, we pray. For we need this truth. We need to know that trials are not random. That in the midst of pain and suffering, we're not, lo- we're not just losers in life. In the midst of disappointments, it's not that things have gone out of control. But you are using these trials to grow perseverance, to shape us, to complete us. And so, Father, help us to give thanks for what you're doing. Not for the trials, but for what you're doing in them. And, Father, help us to be honest with one another as we do this. We won't do it alone. But would we look to Jesus, follow his example, cling to him as our strength? We ask it in his name. Amen.